paid attention to the warning labels that, that come on various products. Anybody ever paid attention to them? You're right. You are so good. I don't think I've ever paid attention to the warning labels, but we probably should because they're there for a reason. You laugh at them. Yeah, because isn't it true? I mean, come on, isn't it true? Some of the warning labels are a little bit like, come on, really? I mean, what, what is the backstory behind that warning label, right? I mean, somebody did something stupid, right? Because these labels are there because, one, somebody did something stupid, or two, the company is so paranoid that you're going to be stupid that they want to warn you of possible stupid things you can actually do with their product. For example, on, on window cleaner, ammonia-based window cleaner, it says, do not spray in eyes. I mean, isn't there just something within human nature that looks at that blue bottle of, of, of cleaner and says, I should spray this directly into my eye? It's window cleaner. Right, but for some reason that, that label's on there. How about this one? If you have a, a drill, a, an electric work, woodworking drill, it says this on the packaging, this product not intended for use as a dental drill. <laughs> yeah, I know some of you are thinking, I'm gonna be a little home dentist. I'm gonna take care of these cavities. Kids, go get the drill. <laughs> or for hair coloring, which obviously I've never bought. Uh, but for a hair coloring product, do not use as an ice cream topping. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always wanted to taste what blonde tastes like, right? I mean, haven't you? Do not use as an ice cream topping. Okay, so, and then sleeping pills. This is a wonderful caution. May cause drowsiness. Isn't that a good thing? <laughs> That's what it's designed to do. Uh, here's, here's a couple of, how many own a wheelbarrow, right? Wheel, okay, here's what it says on a wheelbarrow product, not intended for highway use. <laughs> I mean, who's taking their wheelbarrow to the highway, right? I mean, come on. But there you go, you won't now. Uh, baby stroller, remove baby before folding. <laughs> I mean, that ruined all the fun right there. I mean, you don't need to buy a car seat. You fold the baby up in the stroller, put him in the trunk, boom, you're good. But you know that's there because somebody folded their baby up in a stroller, thinking it'd be a little more convenient. On a thermometer package, once used rectally, the thermometer should not be used orally. Some of you have to ask your parents what that means, but I don't, why is that label on there? Somebody's thinking maybe that's a bad idea. On a jet ski near the fuel tank, never use a lit match to check the fuel level. Yeah, that's there. On a package for rat poisoning, it says this, warning, has been found to cause cancer in lab mice. It's a rat poison, right? And now it's going to cause them to have cancer. Uh, Good to know that I'm buying this to intend to kill rats, but I may actually feel bad that I caused them to have cancer in the process. On a brass fishing hook, harmful if swallowed. I mean, I don't know about you. I've thought about swallowing a good brass hook. It just sounds like a good thing to do. And then finally, on a letter opener package, safety goggles recommended. How many of you are wearing your safety goggles when you're opening up the, the letters, right? Especially those bills. You know, you're about to stab yourself in the eye when you get those bills. It's like, okay, never mind. I'm putting on goggles. I feel a little dangerous doing this stuff. So it's, it's, they're there because 
people have needed some clarity on how to not to use the products, right? And, and it's a good, actually, it's a good example of kind of what the Pharisees and, and the Jewish teachers of the law had done with the Ten Commandments. God had given these commands to have relationship with people, right? And we've, we've all heard the Ten Commandments in some fashion. And the Pharisees kind of thought, well, that, that's good, but we need to break this down, to explain exactly what this means. And so over the years, there had become a collection of rabbinic teaching and laws that were held on the same plane as God's covenant law. And these man-made laws formed a lot of the tradition behind the Jewish faith. And particularly, one of the big, big items there is the Sabbath day. Now, as we know, the Sabbath day was the holy day of the Jewish faith. That was usually Friday night to Saturday night. That period of time was their Sabbath. And on that Sabbath day, there were specific commands of what they weren't supposed to do. And ironically, Jesus comes in and his ministry of grace and healing and compassion collides with all of this religious tradition the Jews had. And the product of that collision for us should be awe-inspiring. It should cause us to look at that again with fresh eyes because the truth is, as Christians, we can even have our own religious tradition that Jesus needs to break up within our own hearts that we might be used of him to be good news to people who need to hear it. So today I want to talk about how Jesus really attacks the, the, the religious tradition of the day, especially around the Sabbath, to prove that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath. So grab your Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, we have Bibles uh, by the doors available to you for free. You can take those as a gift from us to you. We want you to have God's word. You can also use your smart device. Many of you have your tablets or phones and uh, the Bible app produced by Life Church is a Bible app that we promote, and our notes are already embedded in the Bible app. If you go to Menu, More, Events, you'll find us there. Uh, also, you can use our church app. Neighborhood Church has an app in your app store. Just look for Neighborhood Church, Share Faith, those words all used together. Share Faith is a producing company, and you'll find our church app and download that, and we push the notes to you. But in Mark chapter 2, we pick up the story of Jesus' ministry. And what had just happened is he had just walked by the tax-collecting booth of a guy named Levi. And you might recall that tax collectors were despised by all people because they typically were money hungry. Uh, they would cheat you out of money. And if you were a Jew, you were basically considered now a non-Jew if you were a tax collector. You were kicked out of synagogue. You weren't allowed to, to participate in any of the Jewish faith. You were as good as dead. And Jesus calls Levi to follow him. He's like going to the enemy camp and asking people to follow him. And Levi's one of those. His name is also Matthew, who becomes the writer of the first gospel we have in the New Testament, the gospel according to Matthew. And so when he follows Jesus, he decides to throw a party at his house and invites Jesus and his disciples and some of Matthew's friends that were sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus eats with them and celebrates the fact that he came for them. It was them that he came for, and that caused a problem for the Jewish, traditional Jewish leaders who looked at Jesus mingling with sinners and accused him of being too soft. And that's where we pick the story up in, in verse 18 of Mark 2. It says that now John's disciples, so it's not just the Pharisees now, but even John the Baptist had his own followers, his disciples. John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So 
there was a day set aside in the Jewish faith for fasting. It was the day of atonement. That was the one day on the Jewish calendar that the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice on behalf of the whole nation of Israel. And they were called to fast that day. And the fasting was a sign of their repentance, that they truly were sorry for their sins. And that was the only nationally mandated time of fasting. But the Pharisees, of course, over the years had adopted other tradition and laws and decided they would fast twice a week. In fact, they were very proud of the fact that they were fasting twice a week. And so they had elevated their tradition to the level of the law. In fact, even John's disciples, John the Baptist, his disciples had fasted. Their fasting was a sign of repentance because John came to call people to repentance. And so Jesus is being compared now to John's disciples and the Pharisees, basically by saying, if you really are holy, like us, you would be fasting today. But yet Jesus knows where he's at. He's among sinners who have needed to hear the gospel, and Jesus is celebrating. He's throwing back some ribeye, and he's having a great time with some friends, newfound friends, because he knew who he came for. And to him, it was a celebration of the good news going into bad spaces. But that's not how the Pharisees or John's disciples had seen it. And so they compare him. And then Jesus knows what's going on. And so he confronts the issue. He confronts kind of the elephant in the room, if you will, as he goes on in verse 19. And he says this, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So Jesus takes an, an example of, of every day, weddings. Now, some of you remember your wedding. It, you know, it was a 20-minute you know, celebration of, or ceremony that led to maybe a two-hour party, and then you were gone, right? But in the culture of the day, when Jesus ministered, weddings took a week, and you celebrated a whole week, your wedding celebration. And Jesus is taking us the celebration of a wedding because it was a sign of gladness and joy. In fact, during the week of the celebration of a wedding, you would not fast because fasting was a sign of repentance and mourning and grief. And that was totally contrary to most weddings, right? Hopefully it's not a sign of grief. And so it's meant to be a celebration. In fact, the Jewish people believed that they could set aside for that week the rules that would hinder them from having fun. Because that week was all about celebration. And so what Jesus was saying is this now is a time where the bridegroom, me, has come. This is a time of celebration, of gladness, not sadness. Because I have come to be with people, to have a bride that I will form out of people who are broken and sinful. In fact, many times throughout the New Testament, we'll see Jesus refer to himself as the bridegroom who has come to establish a bride, his church. And when Jesus said the bridegroom, it actually rang a pretty big bell with the Jewish people because in the Old Testament, God talks about how he is the bridegroom. And when Jesus said that, he was elevating himself to the place of God. And he said, hey, the bridegroom's here. This is a time to celebrate, but there's a time coming when the bridegroom will be taken away. That normally didn't happen. In most wedding celebrations, the bridegroom wasn't taken away. The bride and the bridegroom would go and culminate their marriage 
uh, and the party would leave. But Jesus is talking about the way that he will be arrested, tried, and crucified. It's a pointing toward his death, where certainly his disciples will fast during that time. But for now, it's a celebration. I have come to bring gladness, not sadness. And, and Jesus informs us that he has come to bring something new, not to perpetuate the old. And the Pharisees didn't see that coming. That with the coming of the Messiah, that the Jewish faith, Judaism, has to give way to what Jesus has come to institute called Christianity. It has to give way. In fact, in Jesus, that Hebrew faith, that Jewish faith, finds its fulfillment and completion in Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament, the law, the temple, all of those things were pointing to the coming of the Messiah who would come and fulfill all of that in his body, his death, his, rex- his resurrection, and then the salvation of those that would follow him. The story goes on in verse 21, so he kind of explains that. He says that no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. This all makes sense, right? Some of you have been there before. You bought a shirt you thought was going to fit you. You take it home, you wash it, and now it fits your toddler, right? I mean, that's kind of how it works sometimes. <laughs> This, this is for you. And that happens because why? Because new clothing, unless it's pre-shrunk, and now you can buy all kinds of pre-shrunk stuff, right? But unless it's pre-shrunk, it will shrink. And his, his illustration here is clothing that's been washed a lot has already hit its shrink capacity, right? But if you put a new piece of cloth on an old garment, that new piece of cloth is going to shrink. And when it does, it tears away from the old. In other words, the old is not compatible with the new. He uses another illustration where he talks about this. He says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, in the culture of the day, you didn't have glass bottles for wine. So that what they would do is they, when, they would, when they would skin a goat, they would use the entire skin of that goat and they would dry it to become leather, and then they would use that skin as a bag. They would sew it together, and it would become a wine skin. And they would put new wine, which basically means unfermented wine. So grape juice, for lack of a better term, right? They would put that inside this new wine skin, and as it fermented, hanging on the wall, the gases would expand the skin, causing that skin to stretch as the alcohol is produced through the process of fermentation. What they wouldn't do is take new wine and put it into an old wine skin. Why? Because that old skin has already been stretched. If you put that new wine in the old skin, it's going to be like a balloon getting blown up past its capacity. It will burst, and the wine and the skin will be ruined. Both of these are examples that Jesus is saying, look, you cannot take what I have come to institute and put it into your old system. It's not a Jesus plus philosophy of living. You don't just add what I am bringing. I am bringing something entirely new. In fact, what I have come to bring is so transcendent. It is so much above what you've had. It cannot be compatible with the faith that you had. Does that mean the Old Testament's bad? No. Remember, all of that points to Jesus. It shows us who God is. It helps us understand who the Father is, but it all points to Jesus. He didn't come to reform the Jewish faith. What he came to do was introduce something new. It was called a new covenant. We're going to talk about that as we approach communion on Friday, the new covenant that's in his blood, a new agreement 
that through my shed blood on the cross, we will be a people together. We'll have relationship together. So Jesus is saying he's that new cloth. He's that new wine, and it will not fit into the paradigm of those Jewish people. Their religion cannot accommodate what Jesus is up to. In fact, here's kind of the way I would say it today for all of us, that Jesus isn't offering you a religious patch, but a whole new spiritual paradigm. Now, why is this important for us to know? Because I, like you, know people who came to Jesus to be a patch, right? They skinned their knee in a bad experience, and they're like, hey, Jesus, I need you to be a patch. When I was a kid, we used to patch clothes. Now you buy them already ripped and you love it, right? But Jesus, I need you to be a patch. I need you to patch up my marriage. I need you to patch up this addiction that I have. I need you to patch up this issue that I have at work. You know, and we, we look at Jesus as though he's some kind of a patch that's here to make our life better. No, last time I checked, Jesus came to be Lord over your life. Not a little additive patch. It's like, thank you, Jesus, for that patch. That feels really good. But I know people who do that, and they come on Sunday with their patch, and they feel so good about Jesus being a patch, but they go back and live however they want to in their tradition of the way they've always lived. And that's what the Jewish people wanted. Jesus, we like you. You seem to be a pretty powerful teacher. Just settle down. Mix with us. Compromise so we can all get along. And he's like, no, you don't get it. What I have to offer will not fit into your skins. I've come to transform lives, not reform your your tradition and your religion. And that's an important thing for us to understand, is that Jesus is not just a patch, but he's a whole new way of living. And that's what he said he came to do. He came to bring us life, abundant life, not just something that feels good. And the question I have to wrestle with personally is, in what ways have I just made Jesus a patch? What ways have I expected him just to fix something but not be Lord of my life? He's not a patch. He's Lord. And that's what he came to help us understand. And then he moves on from there with this whole new way of thinking that he came to bring joy, not sadness, that he came to bring a new, not an old way of living. He now brings it into context around the Sabbath. Here we go in verse 23 of Mark 2. It says that one Sabbath... Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, here's the question. Was what they were doing unlawful? According to Mosaic law, no. It would only be unlawful if they used a piece of equipment to harvest the grain. But according to man's tradition, that was there to safeguard the law, for them to pluck pluck that grain was an act of harvesting. Therefore, they were violating the rule of Sabbath. And then to rub those grains so the chaff would blow away was, well, basically, they were violating. They were separating the wheat from the chaff. That's work. They can't do that. And they were also preparing a meal. They violated three things very quickly in picking that little head of grain. Plus... On the Sabbath day, there were all manners of rules about what you could and couldn't do. And one of those was you couldn't walk any further than 1,999 paces. So today, 
you cannot walk any farther than 1,999 paces. So aren't you going to have Fitbits now to tell us how, that's, how that works, right? But back then, they didn't have Fitbits. What they would do is they would place markers outside the village that would say, you can't go any farther than this if it's a Sabbath day. So, they had, so they're looking at Jesus and his disciples walking through a field and thinking, man, they've already violated. They've walked away too many paces, and they're harvesting. He is such a lawbreaker. You know, on the Sabbath day, they had some pretty crazy rules. One of them was you couldn't carry anything bigger than the half of a fig in your hand. So the rule was you could not carry anything in the, in the open hand the size of a half a fig. But you know what they would do? They would carry things in the back of their hands. So they wouldn't violate the law. They would carry things on the tops of their feet. So they wouldn't violate the law. They would carry things on their head. So they wouldn't violate the law. The law said you couldn't tie a knot on the Sabbath. And if you wanted to get well water out of the well, you would have to tie a knot onto a bucket and lower it. You couldn't do that. But, ladies, you could tie your girdle on the Sabbath. So guess what happened? You used your girdle to go get water in the well because you could tie a knot in your girdle that you couldn't tie in a rope. You see the point? It was silly laws. And Jesus was accused of violating. Let me make it very clear. He did not violate any law that day. His disciples were hungry. They picked grain. But the Pharisees weren't very happy because they were violating the law. Let's look at what the law actually says. Because it has to do with the Sabbath. And we see in Exodus 20 the commandment around the Sabbath. But I have to help you understand that is not the first time Sabbath is appointed. Right, let's look at it. Exodus 20, verse 8. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but on the seventh, or it, or, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now, this commandment shows us this is not a Mosaic law issue. This is a God thing that starts at creation. When God spent six days creating the world, it wasn't like he got tired finally by the seven and so he rested. The point was, it's done. It is finished. And this is a day to rest. God didn't need the rest, but he knew that we would that we would need to learn how to rest. And so the Sabbath was a day of rest and worship to help us understand that we trust in God, not just our own abilities to work. We replenish ourselves in him, not just in our own abilities to suck it up and do it again the next day. So it was, it was a dependence on God. It was meant to be a blessing to man, not to become burdensome, but it, it had over these years become a burden. And what these Pharisees were basically saying was, it's better for you to go hungry than it is to break our rules. And so that's when Jesus uses an example of a guy named David, King David. Verse 25, he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? So what was the story? David was not yet the appointed king, he was anointed by, Saul, by Samuel to be king, but currently Saul was king. So here's David on the run from Saul because Saul is jealous of David and his popularity and threatens to kill David. 
I think it's a beautiful parallel story between Jesus, who is the anointed king, but hasn't come yet as the appointed king, who's on the run basically for his life from the Pharisees who are trying to kill him because they're threatened by his power. I mean, it's a wonderful parallel story between David and Jesus. And, and basically he says, look, when they were hungry, they went into the house of God. It wasn't a temple yet. It was a, it was a tabernacle. And they went into the house of God and asked the priest to feed them. And he had nothing to feed them except the bread of presence, which was the daily loaves that were put out before God as an offering to him. And only the priest was supposed to eat those loaves. But David ate them. He wasn't a priest. He fed it to his friends. They certainly weren't priests, yet they weren't punished. God didn't punish them for violating what would appear to be a law. And so he uses this great example of David to show us that God is actually more concerned about you as a person than he is about you obeying a law. Now, this is important to understand later when it comes to Jesus, all right? So it was not normal or lawful for David and his friends to eat this bread of presence, but it was even more the case, though, that God did not want them to starve. All right, so the summary point Jesus makes is this, verse 27. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to bless man and not for man to bless the Sabbath, right? And then he says something profound, and he says this, for the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, we don't see it happen in the video that you watched earlier, but these words would have set these Pharisees on fire. Because once again, he's equating himself to God. There's only one Lord of the Sabbath in the mind of the Jewish people, and it is God who instituted Sabbath. And now Jesus is saying, I'm that Lord, so I get to determine what is right and what is wrong for you to do on the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, I am your rest. And you have burdened people far too long with your rules and regulation. I am the rest. Because you have wearied out these people trying to earn God's favor through the law. Look at what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. I will be that Sabbath for you. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Get this. When Jesus was on the cross, we'll look at it on Friday in closer detail, but when he was on that cross and he was about to breathe his last, what did he say? He said, it is finished. It is finished. In other words, the work that I have come to do it is finished. And when he spoke those words and breathed his last, do you know what happened? The temple veil that separates the holy of holies from the common holy place was ripped from top to bottom, opening up access to God through the finished work of Jesus. We approach God now not through rules and regulation, but through a relationship with Jesus. And here's the big idea behind that, that a relationship with the Lord of the Sabbath will give us rest from religion forever. And many of you have been the product of religion. You grew up in a very strict religious environment and it was all about rules and regulation, and it actually drove you away from God. When the reason God gave the laws initially in the Old Testament was to have relationship with people. How are an unholy people going to have a relationship with a holy God? And so he spells it out in a covenant, but it was a temporary covenant because the day would come that Jesus would be the Messiah who came, who would bring relationship with people to God once again. Restore that relationship, not through rules, but through a relationship with his son. 
And so he came to release us from the pressures of religion and move us into a place instead of joyful obedience because we love God and he loves us and we honor him not because the rule says so. We honor him because the Holy Spirit within us loves God and we love God and we want to honor him. There's a big difference there. But then the story goes on, Mark 3, chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of the men were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. I think this is just, this is so interesting. I wonder, I mean, Jesus had healed a lot of people in Capernaum. This is probably where he is now, back in the the hometown of his ministry base, Capernaum. And he's been there before to the synagogue to preach and teach. He set a a demon-possessed man free. He healed people throughout the night that lived in the city. And here's this man on a Sabbath with a shriveled hand. I have a feeling, this is just me, my interpretation, so I could be wrong. Don't base God's word on my words. But listen to this. What if the Pharisees brought this guy with a shriveled hand just to test Jesus? to see if he would heal him. This blows my mind. You know why? Because the Pharisees know something about Jesus, that he has, a, has the power to heal. I mean, wouldn't that just stop them and go, okay, guys, let's, let's, let's group up for a second. Here's this guy who has power to heal. Maybe we should pay attention to that. But they don't, and they just watch him closely without knowing him personally. And friends, there's a danger when we think that we know about Jesus, but we don't know Jesus personally. There is a big danger with that. In fact, I I like to, to basically say it this way, that you can believe that you're all about God and yet miss what God is all about. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were all about God, right? They had commands and laws, and boy, they knew them. They could memorize them. They could quote it to you. And all the 913 additional laws that came out of the Mosaic law, they could tell you it all. They knew they were all about God. But they entirely missed what God was all about. And friends, this can happen very easily in our Christian faith as well. We can think we know so much about God but we're not doing much about God in our world today. And that's a dangerous place to be because there's a form of Pharisee faith that still happens in the Christian faith where our righteousness and our holiness and our goodiness can actually be a hindrance to people coming to know Jesus. We can know all about God, and our knowledge about God can actually push people away from what God is all about. So it was time for Jesus to act. He was sick and tired of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And so what does he do? Verse 3, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand in front of everyone. Now, this is what's pretty cool about Jesus. He wasn't afraid of a confrontation. I mean, if, if he wanted to, you know what he could have done? He could have just healed the man secretly. He had that power. He didn't have to call him out in front of the church for everybody to see him, to heal him. He could have done it privately. The man could have left. His hand was healed. End of story. But no, he needs to make a point to these Pharisees that you have gone too far in holding rule over relationship. You've gone too far when the priority is all this tradition and not the people who need to know Jesus is Lord and Savior, Lord of the Sabbath who has come to give them rest and to make them whole. And so then he asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Verse 4, to do good or do evil? To save life 
or to kill. I think it's interesting why he would put this here. Do you know why this is here? Because he knew it was in their hearts. And he knew they've already been plotting to kill him. Here are religious leaders inside their synagogue, and what is their heart full of? Hatred and murder. They're premeditating the murder of Jesus. Because we're going to see it right after this story when they leave to go create a plan to do it. Their hearts are full of wickedness and murder, and that's what Jesus calls out. He's going, look, it's the Sabbath. Is this a day to heal or to kill? Because he knew it was in their hearts. So what happens? Story goes on, verse 5, he looked at them in anger. Of course, he was angry at them because of what their pride has done and what their laws have done to exclude people and keep people who need to be saved and restored from the God who can do that. And their stubborn hearts, he was also deeply distressed. What does that mean? While he was mad, he was also grieved for them that they couldn't see the forest for all the trees. I mean, if anybody should have seen the Messiah, it was the Pharisees. But they couldn't see it through their tradition. So he's grieved for them. And so he says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. What does this show us? That Jesus shows that human need is more important than ritual observance. Around the Sabbath issue, this is what he said in Matthew's account of this story. He says this in Matthew 12, 7, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I have come to be mercy, which is what I want you to be. And mercy triumphs over the rules and regulations and keeping people at an arm's length away from God. Human need trumps religious ritual. And the truth is, how many know that sometimes we have our own religious ritual that pushes the human need away? Because we're better than those people. We don't hang out with those kind. And we begin to judge when that's not our place. So we're putting our tradition over the need of that person to know Jesus. Verse 6, And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You probably don't see it here, but I close with this. This is an unlikely partnership. The Pharisees hated the Herodians, and the Herodians hated the Pharisees. Why? The Pharisees were all about Jewish tradition and law. They were about restoring the nation of Israel as God's chosen people and doing that through teaching the law to bring people back into right relationship with Jehovah God. And so it was all about tradition and Israel. Herod, who was king, was the son of another Herod who was all about political power. And these Herods had allied themselves with the Roman Empire, and they were about oppressing the Jewish people. So you had the Pharisees who were all about national pride and trying to restore themselves to their great rich history, and you had the Herodians who were trying to squash that. You have two polar opposite people coming together. Why? Jesus brings even enemies together. But in this case, it's kind of a bad thing, right? I mean, they are plotting to kill him. People who were normally enemies say, okay, this is enough. We're going to compromise our values 
and we're going to get rid of this threat. Why? Because people are threatened by a power they don't understand. And friends, this truth is still true today. Aren't there all kinds of organizations out there to silence the voice of Christian testimony? Why? Because they're threatened by a power they don't understand. And so they accuse us and they call us all kinds of names, hate mongers and all these things that are so not true. Why? To push us aside because they're threatened by the truth of God's word. And a relationship with God that restores the broken threatens them. So we've learned some really important things. We've learned that Jesus isn't offering you a religious patch, but a whole new spiritual paradigm, a whole new way of living. We've also learned that a relationship with the Lord of the Sabbath gives us rest from religion. And some of you need that because you're worn out trying to earn God's favor through religion, and that's not how it happens. It starts with a relationship with Jesus who came as your Messiah. We've also learned that you can't believe that you're all about God and yet miss what God is all about. I mean, so many times we've been guilty of that. And finally, what Jesus shows us, that human need is more important than our ritual observance or obedience. What's all this mean? Here's what it basically means. For us as Christians today who believe in Jesus, the Lord, who was compassionate and merciful and gracious and all those things that come in to make the good news, we need to keep that good news primary and central to our life and our faith. Because if we lose sight of this good news, that people need Jesus, the broken need to be made whole, and we need to be messengers of that grace and that compassion and not allow religious tradition to get in the way, but we need to keep the gospel front and center to be like Jesus and how we interact with our world today. Because once we lose sight of this and we push it off center, what fills its place? Let me tell you, self-righteous tradition. It takes its place every time. And Jesus came to push that kind of tradition aside and say, I've come to usher in something new. The Lord of the Sabbath who has come to give rest to weary souls and to restore those that are tired of the brokenness of their sin and bring healing to the souls of mankind. That's why he came. But we can't lose sight of it. That's the gospel. But if we push it off to the side and focus instead on our own shallow self-righteousness, that will push people away. Maybe you felt that before from somebody who was religious and pushed you aside because of the way you lived your life. You maybe wanted hope, but it didn't look very good on that person. God help us that we will be examples of the Lord of the Sabbath who has come to bring rest to those who are weary and to call them to come in and never exchange the truth of the gospel for a shallow religious tradition that's all about external behavior and never about the heart. So let's pray about that. God, today we stop and we have to look at ourselves first. It's so easy to see religious tradition in other people but miss it in our own lives. Pharisees didn't see it. They thought they were all that. They thought they were all about you, God, and missed what you were all about. God, I know I've been guilty of that myself. And Jesus, you came to upset that mindset. You've come to usher in a season of Sabbath where you've said, I've come to bring rest to the weary soul. I've come to offer a relationship through my shed blood, not a series of rules and regulations. 
So thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you that you've come to restore my soul. And for anybody in the room who needs that today, maybe you're saying, Kelly, I need that kind of rest. I'm tired in my trying to earn God's favor through behaviors. I'll never meet the standard. So I need Jesus to be the one who stands in my place, who gives me rest for my soul. Maybe that's you today. If that's you, just kind of raise a hand and say, Kelly, that's kind of where I am at. Will you pray with me today? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, you see those hearts and know what's going on. And I pray they'd recognize today, when you said those words from the cross, it was true. It is finished. The favor they want from you, God, now comes through your son and believing and embracing him as our savior and having a relationship with him, not based on rules, but on love, of loving God and loving our neighbors. That's what you come to bring, Jesus. So I pray that assurance over their life today that in choosing you and the work you did on the cross, that it is done and they can enter a season of rest in the relationship with you and obey you not because they have to, but because they want to. The Holy Spirit's at work in their hearts to bring them into Christ's likeness in the way they live their lives. God, for others in the room maybe who are hung up on the religious pride and their tradition and they've exchanged that good news they once embraced in their own heart. They've exchanged that now for this crusty, shallow, selfish tradition of religion. God, I pray you would shatter that today in this room, that we'd go as messengers of your good news. Examine our hearts. Lord, help us to see that. We love you and thank you that you came to be our rest. May we help share that news with those who are weary and worn out from their sin-stained life to find the hope that you've come to bring, especially this week of all weeks, Jesus. Help us to be messengers of that good news, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.